0: The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. We've all seen it, right? This trope about why people die in horror movies... I mean, maybe you hear a dangerous noise, so you go outside to investigate, and boom, the killer gets you. In that moment, whenever I'm watching a movie like that, I think to myself, why weren't you afraid enough? I mean, a little fear will go a long way in keeping someone alive, right? Like, you should be afraid to touch a hot stove or to drive drunk or to eat a poisonous berry. Like, those are good things to fear. But sometimes... Our fears can go into overdrive. We can become dependent upon them, and they go from being a survival tool, a useful survival tool at that, to becoming a crutch that gets in the way of the things that we want. So, how do you know the difference? Well, welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the What Would It Take podcast. Today, we're exploring the question What would it take to greet our fears with curiosity? Now, this isn't an easy question to answer, and if it sounds familiar at all, it should. It's quite literally the same question I asked at the end of Season 3, Episode 4. The reason I'm revisiting it is because a friend of mine requested an episode specifically about this question. So here we are. Now, what do I even mean when I ask this question? Like, which fears am I talking about? Why are we choosing curiosity? I mean... There's a lot you could wonder about this, so let's break it down. As I started to do some research for this podcast episode, I realized that I'm probably not just talking about fear. I'm also talking about things like anxiety, worry, dread, avoidance, and a few other emotions as well. But for my definitions, I'm drawing upon the definitions used in the book Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. This book is literally like an encyclopedia of different emotions you might experience. Now, the book is useful in some ways and not that useful in others, but I'm going to pull from some of the definitions that Brene Brown uses in it. Anxiety. Anxiety is described as an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. Worry. Now, technically, worry isn't an emotion though it does feel like it sometimes for me worry is described as the thinking piece of anxiety it's a way we try to cope with anxiety it's a chain of negative thoughts about bad things that might happen in the future so anxiety is generally future oriented and worry is a way we cope with our anxiety or at least a way we can cope with our anxiety avoidance is another way people try to cope with anxiety It's described as not showing up and spending energy zigzagging away from the thing that feels like it's consuming us. So we have anxiety, which is the emotion. And then we have two ways we try to cope through either worry or avoidance. Now to the main event, fear. Fear is described as a negative, short-lasting, high-alert emotion in response to a perceived threat. So for example, if you're walking outside and you suddenly see a brown bear What you're feeling is fear. It's likely telling you to initiate one of three responses, fight, flee, or freeze. That's fear. It's short-lasting, high alert, and it's an immediate response to a perceived threat. Now, Brene Brown notes that fear is a response to the present, and anxiety is uh, a response to something that may happen in the future. In my experience, though, I'm I'm not sure it's that cut and dry. As someone who lives with complex PTSD, there are moments in which my fear feels ever-present. And on some level, it is, all right Because with complex PTSD, a, a key feature of that, at least for me, is that my fear, the, the trauma that I'm responding to, is never too far away. And so I may be having a moment in which I think I'm responding to what's happening in the present, but in reality, there's a piece of me, maybe several pieces of me that are initiating a response from some previous experience, from some previous trauma that I underwent that I never was fully able to process and move through. So it seems like I'm responding to something in the present, when in reality, I'm bringing a full-fledged trauma response from something that happened in the past into this present moment. And I think the same thing is true of anxiety for me. While I may be worried about a future thing, I'm worried about it because of something that has already happened to me. Now, that doesn't mean that's how it works for you, but this is the way they get kind of mixed up in me, I think, which is why these distinctions are useful, but not always the most applicable in my own life. So when Brene Brown says that fear and anxiety are different because one is past oriented and one is future oriented, that's sensible. Like it's logical to me but it doesn't fully align with my lived experience. And for some of us, the past, the present, and the future are all blurred together in ways that feel unhelpful. So let's expand my question a bit today. Maybe you notice yourself holding more anxiety than fear, and you're tying yourself in knots over a decision you need to make next month. Maybe your worry is on overdrive and you can't stop obsessively thinking about a specific situation that's coming up. You've poured over every possible outcome hundreds of times, but you just can't let it go. Or maybe your go-to move is avoidance, and it's got you so down bad that you've stopped progressing in life. The goals and dreams you once had are falling by the wayside, not because what you want has changed, but because you can't bring yourself to face the things you need to face. So you avoid them, but you know you're not getting any better. You know you're not feeling any better and you're not sure what to do. Or maybe you're just like me and you are noticing how afraid you really are. Man, I'll tell you, fear has a foothold over several areas of my life. I'm gonna be real for a moment and name some of the key fears that are coming up for me in this particular season of life. And some of these fears are are pretty deep-rooted, so I'll just share them with you. Yo, know, I'm afraid I won't be around enough for my son. I'm afraid that love and companionship cannot last. I'm afraid that I'll become stagnant and unchanged, and I'll look up one day wondering where my life went. I've got more. Trust me, I could keep naming fears here, but I'll stop there. Many of my fears are connected to the wounds I experienced as a young child. For about a quarter of my life, danger was ever-present. There was always something or someone to be afraid of. And I spent many days and nights just waiting for the next threat to emerge. Fear was everywhere, and hypervigilance became part of my personality. It, it's still with me today, actually. Something shifted as I got older, though. As I got older, I became more immersed in Christianity. I was put in foster care with an a evangelical Christian family. And as I stepped more and more into the Christian environment, I was introduced to a God that was all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. And I was told that this God would have my back. So as a result, I started to understand my faith as an antidote to fear. I was encouraged to learn and memorize verses like Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and bold. Have no fear or dread of them. Because it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then there's Psalm 23.4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or Psalm 27:1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? And there are hundreds of other verses like this, and in each of them the message that I internalized was that I didn't need to be afraid because God has my back, and as long as I followed him, God would take care of me. This helped me for a while, but at some point, I began to question even that belief. I think I was in eighth grade when the first question really reached an apex in my mind. See, a friend of mine, uh, their mom had cancer. It was aggressive and quickly spreading. And this was a, a Christian family. They went to my church. I knew them. I loved them. And so I just knew that God was going to heal my mom's friend. I knew that God was going to take care of her cancer. The entire congregation, our whole church prayed over her. People prophesied about her healing. We laid hands on her. It was powerful. I still have brief memories from the worship service that we did this. But the thing is, her condition didn't improve. It worsened, actually. The cancer continued spreading, and months later, my friend's mom died. And suddenly, my friend was left without a parent, and I was left with grief and a lot of questions. Why didn't God heal her? Isn't that what God's supposed to do? I mean, this is one of those moments, and in fact, one of the first moments of my life when I realized that the faith I held didn't fully align with the world that I was living in, and that life wasn't as simple as trusting God would take care of me and keep me safe. Because if God couldn't save my friend's mom, or if God just chose not to, why should I believe God would always choose to take care of me? It's a tough question. And it's a question that meant that my faith could no longer be the antidote to my fear. Now, what I know, you know, nearly 20 years later is that there's an entire branch of theology dedicated to wrestling with that very issue. Why do bad things still happen? Why does evil exist? If God is all good, all powerful, ever present and all knowing, then how can these things happen? And I don't have a, A clean answer for you all. I'm I'm not here to answer that question. And as far as I know, the debate still rages on in theological circles. I don't know if any answer will ever be satisfactory, though. And don't get me wrong, theology can help. But in the face of life's deepest losses, we don't really want theories. I don't think we even want explanations sometimes. We might think we do, but at the end of the day... None of that changes the loss. None of that really eases the pain. None of that keeps the grief at bay. So I've got my own like personal theological answers to these questions, but those aren't what helped me navigate my fear. In fact, it would take well over a decade and a half for me to stumble upon an idea that began to shift things for me. And it was the idea... That my emotions, all of them, fear included, were things that I could experience, allow, feel, and even understand rather than things I needed to suppress and control. See, what I understand now is that my fear has something to tell me. There's a narrative, a story that is fueling the fear. And so rather than avoiding it or trying to get rid of it, I need to sit with it long enough to understand the story I'm telling myself. Here, let's look at one of the fears I named earlier and examine it to see if we can find the story. Spoiler alert, of course, we're gonna find the story I wrote the episode, but it's neither here nor there. Just play along with me. Okay, one of the fears I named is that I'm afraid that love and commitment can't last. That's the fear and one of my core life beliefs. The thing is, this belief can end up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I'm afraid that love can't or won't last, then at some point, I'll start acting like it's not going to last. And for me, historically, that's meant keeping one foot in and one foot out of relationships. It's meant withholding pieces of myself in preparation for the loss and pain. It's meant doing small things to push people away or keep them at arm's length. And if you do any of that for long enough, even the best relationships are going to begin to deteriorate. And before you know it, your belief comes true. A relationship ends and your initial fear is reaffirmed. It's an endless cycle. So that's the story I tell myself. Love and commitment won't last. But why do I hold that story? And as with most things in life, there isn't just one reason. There's a lot of reasons over time. But as I understand myself, I think one of the key reasons I hold this story is because I experienced a major loss early on. My mom left. Is that factually what happened? I don't know. What I do know is that I was placed in foster care and my mom was somewhere else with my stepdad. Whether she chose to leave or had to leave, I'll never fully understand. But. As a young kid, one moment I had my mom. I was there living with her in her homeless shelter. And the next moment, she was talking to me, telling me she wouldn't be there and that we were going to go live somewhere else. She was gone. And like most young children, my mom was my world. She was the one constant in my life. I didn't always have a dad around. Food and housing were inconsistent and friends were nearly non-existent. But I never went too long without my mom until I did, until she was suddenly completely out of my life and my world was blown apart. And as a nine year old, I had to find some way to make sense of that. So I began to internalize this belief that at some point, everyone leaves. I needed that belief to protect myself against future pain, against future loss. It was a way to protect myself, and a story I've held on to for over 15 years. So why am I convinced that love and commitment won't last? Because my mom left. But this is what happens when we meet our fears with curiosity. We begin to unravel the stories we tell ourselves, and hopefully we can find our way towards understanding. But then what? Like, it's one thing to name my fear. It's another thing to try and understand it. But what's after the understanding? Well, the next step for me is noticing when my fear comes up and working to change the narrative. Because, truthfully, folks, the only reason I want to change the narrative is because I don't think it's serving me anymore. Like, I'm realizing I gain nothing by choosing to believe that everyone's going to leave me. I don't gain anything. In fact, I've probably lost some things over the years because I'm holding onto that belief so tightly. So, for the first time in life, I'm going to choose to believe something else. I'm writing a new story. So whenever I notice my fear getting kicked up, and I notice that old narrative starting to take over, I pause, take a couple breaths, and remind myself of two things. The first is that I'm not in that homeless shelter anymore. I'm not that little kid whose mom is telling him that she's leaving. As painful as that was, I have to remember that I'm not there. I'm right here, right now, in this moment. And it deserves my attention. The second is that I've already survived one of the worst things that has ever happened to me. And since then, I've loved and been loved time and time again. I've met a lot of people who've chosen to stay. And as a result, I too am learning how to choose to stay. So I'm I'm beginning to switch and change the narrative I've been holding. So that's me. But what about you? What stories are you telling yourself? What stories are you believing that no longer serve you? Maybe you already know what stories you're telling and you know why you're telling them. What you don't know is how to change. And I can't give everyone a cookie cutter uh, answer or set of answers, but I can say I think no matter who we are, it's always a safe bet to involve other people. So maybe that means for you, you need to find out what type of therapy will work for you and then find a therapist that is a good fit. You might have to shop around and try three or four different therapists, but take the time. Find one that's a good fit because you'll be working with them likely for years. Maybe it means seeking out a support group that will encourage you to be vulnerable but also hold you accountable. If you're deeply spiritual, maybe it's not a therapist or support group. Maybe you need a spiritual director. Or honestly, maybe you need all of that and something else. My point is, you can glean a lot from books and podcasts. But at some point, you need to expand your network Seek out actual people and identify different ways that you can be supported. So, take some time, develop your support system. I think that's where we can start. So, whether you're dealing with fear, anxiety, dread, or anything else, I think we can all invite curiosity into ourselves and into our lives in the hopes that we'll understand ourselves just a little bit better. So, What happens when we greet our fears with curiosity? If you think you know the answer, let's get to work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm so glad you're with me on this journey and if you have questions, ideas, or suggestions for the show, please reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram as Thoughtful Revolutionary. On Facebook, it's Benjamin J or Benjamin Joseph Tapper. Or you can email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. And I can't wait to join you for the next episode. Take care, y'all.